when the 11 o'clock transmission goes out, instead of that cold-hearted speech machine, it's the, it's a group of drunken Stasi officers singing Alan Meinenschen, which means all of my ducklings. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. You might remember listening to shortwave radio during the Cold War and coming across weird transmissions of metallic voices reciting random groups of numbers through the ether. These are number stations. Shortwave radio stations characterised by broadcasts of formatted numbers which were being sent to spies operating in foreign countries. Number stations were used widely during the Cold War and we speak with Joe Regald of shortwavenumbers.com. Joe has been working with Simon Mason who is a founding member of Enigma which was launched in the 1980s after identifying several of these stations. We discuss in detail the operations behind the transmissions and the stations themselves. You will hear some sample transmissions, including one of drunken Stasi officers serenading their agents after the opening of the war. We also detail a UK spy case that centred on capturing an agent red-handed listening to a number station. Now, if you think there's a vast army of research assistants, audio engineers and producers putting this podcast together, you'd be wrong. This podcast relies on your support to enable me to continue to capture these incredible stories and make them available to everyone for free. If you'd like to help to preserve Cold War history and enable me to continue producing the podcast, you can via a one-off or monthly donation. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more details. You can also join our Facebook discussion group where the Cold War Conversation continues between episodes. Just search Cold War Conversations on Facebook. I'm delighted to welcome Joe Regal to our Cold War Conversation. For your listeners, your listeners might recognise that my name, uh, Joe Regalt, is it's actually a pseudonym. For those who speak Hungarian, Joe Regalt means good morning in Hungarian. And that's because my grandfather, he is a, a refugee to the United Kingdom uh, from Hungary. Uh, he came across in 1956 um, from a place in North East Hungary called Erdobénia. And it's ever it's gone since then, really. I think that my family have been a result of the Cold War. Had he not come across during uh, the Budapest uprising, uh, we wouldn't be here right now. Um, I wasn't born until 1990, so I wasn't really a, a fully independent teenager until the late 2000s. But I was into my electronic music. And in 2008, uh, the artist Moby released an album called Last Night. Uh, there's, there's a song on that album. It's called 257.0. And I liked it. I found it quite hypnotizing. Anyway, lo and behold, a couple of years later, I'm, I'm browsing YouTube and I got up to make a cup of coffee. And I could hear the song playing from the kitchen. So I, I come back with my cover and I turn it up and uh, there's no beat or, or no rhythm to it at all. I thought, oh, this must be a remix. Um, so I look at the screen and it's showing E05, the counting station. 
Um, and it, it basically it turned out that Moby had uh, he'd sampled that number station and, and turned it into a song. This this piece of music called two five seven point zero. So so being quite the inquisitive person, I started looking more into number stations. Like, well, hang on, if this is E zero five, there must be a one, two, three, and a four. Looking on YouTube, I found that they were being used a hell of a lot as a as some sort of horror story trope. Um, so stations such as G zero four, uh, which we call three note oddity. Um, it does have quite an unnerving element, um, but where some people found them quite creepy, I, f- I sort of found some, some comfort in them. Um, and like I mentioned before, they're quite hypnotizing. So if I need to relax, I've, I might play one of them in the background while I'm having a glass of wine or, or a glass of whiskey. But ever since since probably about 2012, I've been listening to them, investigating and doing a lot of research. Um, but it's a fairly interesting topic of the Cold War because not only is it es- quite esoteric, but our understanding of the Cold War changes as we delve deeper into number stations. From a broad viewpoint, the Cold War was a lot about East versus West. In Europe, it was a lot about NATO versus the Warsaw Pact. But on the radio, it's everybody against each other. Uh, the big players are all there. So the US, the UK, the USSR, uh, both German republics. But then we start to bring in countries which have which are quite neutral. or They don't really have much skin in the game. So for instance, Austria, we hear a lot about them. We hear Yugoslavia, and we, we actually hear something about France for a change as well. And we also see stuff that's happening with the Warsaw Pact. Bulgaria, Romania, uh, Hungary all had intelligence outfits. And then we also hear about the Far East, so China, Taiwan, uh, the two Koreas, North Korea and South Korea. And then to the West, we also hear from Cuba with their efforts too. And then there's the investigative work that comes out of that woodwork, so such as missions involving Swedish agents in Czechoslovakia, uh, UVB76 and its setup, the Tyrolean music station. If I guess the best way to sum it up is number stations are quite a soundtrack to the East and the West staring at each other and working out who blinks first. It's that, how do I put it? it it's the playlist to the Cold War for the entire time. I love it. I love it. The playlist to the Cold War. That's uh, that's a great soundbite I'm going to be using in the, in the uh, promo material there. <laughs> Now, it sounds like we've got a a lot to talk about. You know, this isn't a straightforward subject, but let's sort of wind it back. And what is a number station? Why were they started and and what do they mean? Um, So I'll I'll set the scene first. The the Cold War or the period we know as the Cold War is pretty much the era of radio waves. Uh, You have stations like the Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Moscow, uh, here in the UK, we were quite big on Radio Caroline, the pirate radio station. But also, you know, across the wall, you had stations like uh, Radio Yerevan, who were known for their, their fantastic jokes. Uh, one of my favourite is Radio Yerevan was asked, is it true that if thermonuclear war breaks out, our beautiful city of Yerevan will be reduced to dust? And Radio Yerevan answered, yes, this is correct. However, Moscow is by far a more beautiful city. <laughs> yeah. And... <laughs> um, um, and for many of these stations, you, you could write to them and you could receive something called a QSL card, which which is a postcard that acknowledges that listeners receive that that station's transmission. Um, but some QSL cards are forms of, of propaganda. Uh, Radio Moscow would, would create hype about the USSR on some of their cards, but they're also great bits of art as well. So you're sending bits of culture away to, you know, beyond the wall uh, that you can share and go, oh, actually, you know what? The art side in, in, in the USSR is actually really, really interesting and you can imagine showing that to uh, to your mum and your dad who might have been fighting on behalf of their country and going, that's absolute nonsense, that we don't get rid of it. But 
but you, you know, got dialing back then, you said, what is a number station? And I've, I've broken it down into three sentences for you. It, it's a message from one person to another. Um, it's encoded mostly to stop third parties getting in on the action or foreign intelligence thwarting a mission. So for that reason, the message would be encoded into a series of numbers that come across as random. But when you decode it, it's not random at all. And it's broadcast over radio. And like I said, it was the era of radio waves. Um, it's the easiest and most inconspicuous way in the, in the 20th century to do so. So you know, there's, there's no shortage of radio equipment, uh, which can be easily deployed. Everybody had a shortwave radio at home, so it didn't look out of place. But also, to be anonymous, you need people around you. So in the 1970s, there were no pocket radios. In the 1980s, the Sony Walkman was still a baby. But everybody would know if you had a Walkman or a pocket radio, you couldn't be anonymous at all. There were people who thought it was quite narcissistic. There's a, there's a couple of newspaper articles, the New York Post, the, the Times of London, all saying, oh, who are these Walkman babies? But compared to today, where people are wearing headphones outside is quite common. It wasn't the same back then. And the same goes for an, for an anonymous number station transmission too. It would be nestled amongst shortwave stations. So almost as if tuning into it was an accident and a simple turn of the dial would find another transmission. But the truth is number stations weren't anonymous. They were quite the opposite. You can't hide from your own language. You can't hide from your accent. You can't hide from your own equipment either. So the most, most Warsaw Pact stations used the same electronic voice machine. But then also as well, some were used for messages. Was that we we used for the psyops as well? Here's a sample of a number station known as the Swedish Rhapsody. Can you take us through the the structure behind the transmissions? In fact, our probably best is, would you like to do a hypothetical example of how a number station works? Yes, please. Yeah, okay, so uh, let's just say that, that both you and I work in the Stasi. Uh, Ian, you'll be my agent, uh, my spy, uh, and I'll be your section chief. Uh, so Ian, as a Stasi agent, congratulations, you've shown your worth, and we have a critical assignment for you. Uh, we've received intelligence that US President Ronald Reagan is going to visit West Berlin and make a speech sometime in the next few months. Your mission is to gather as much information as you can find. Uh, we're looking for anything. So what's the motorcade route? Is he going to say something provocative? What do West Berliners think of him? Is there any compromise you can get on any border guards? Get any information you can. As section chief, my mission is to make Ronald Reagan's visit embarrassing. So I'm going to give you the following equipment. I'm going to give you enough West Deutschmarks to cover rent and food. I'm going to give you a passport and travel documents. I'm going to give you something called a one-time pad. I'm going to give you the location of your Dropbox. Um, I'm going to give you a radio kit uh, and then with an encoder. And I've also thrown in some extra cash. Pick me up some Marlboro cigarettes. If you get them back, I'll see that you get more time across the wall. And we're going to assign a number to you. So you will be Agent 425. 
and your your instruction is to listen to a specific radio frequency at 19:30 every Wednesday. Each time that radio calls 425, you'll need to decode the message with your one-time pad. There are two of those one-time pads. You have one, and I've got the other. Therefore, any message for Asian 425 can only be encrypted or decrypted by the combination on that pad, and it can only be sent by you or me. Don't lose it. If you lose it, come back immediately. Don't let anybody see you decoding a message. If you get caught, prepare for unforeseen consequences from both sides of the Berlin Wall. And what we're going to do is we'll, we'll send you through one of the hidden U-Bahn crossings uh, so you make your way to the west, and eventually you'll have gotten yourself accommodation and a radio, anything to make yourself blend in. And you, you go amongst your intelligence gathering, and eventually Wednesday comes. It's about to hit 19.30, so in your rented place, in, in your bedroom, with your radio, ensure nobody's around you. 19.30 comes along, and the radio plays a series of chimes. Not a twinkly tune, but something akin to a grandfather clock. And then all of a sudden, you'll hear four, two, five. Four, two, five. So that means that, that our station is calling Agent 425. So then you get your pen. Right, okay. Here we go. It'll then read out another number. It might say two, three, two, three. In that case, that's what we call a group count. So it means that there's 23 groups of, of numbers coming through. The numbers are going to come through in, in groups of five, and you've got 23 of them to write down. So eventually, the numbers come along. So four, two, five, four, two, five. That's for you. Two, three, two, three. You've got 23 groups, so they come. And then you'll just get a whole raft of numbers coming through. One, two, three, four, five. It could be anything up to nine. Uh, basically, you'll write them down, but your one-time pad has been coded to a sequence which is aligned to a code word. What we've seen through through history that some of these code words can be anything, but usually they're about eight, eight, eight digits long. But once that sequence has been completed, you decrypt it. You, most of the times, you, uh, you'd subtract it away. So if, if you have a, let's think of 37425, that would be one of your groups that comes through. Right, three. What does three align to on my one-time pad? Oh, it aligns to six or something like that, and you start to subtract it away. And then you compile that to your code word. And eventually you start getting this message coming through. No spaces, of course. Um, so it would be one long, long sentence. Um, it might be a long one, so you could be doing it for over an hour. And it could say anything such as return back to base. It could be equipment, a Dropbox, or it could be submit compromat. Uh, if there's no message, you'll have a no message. When we say submit compromat, that could be anything. That could be send it through the postal system, but it also could be send it back via radio. Uh, one of those pieces of equipment was a burst encoder. Now, this is a little little nifty little device. It looks like the old rotary phone, um, and you, you dial in. You, you dial in your message that you've encrypted yourself from your one-time pad. You plug it into some of the equipment I've given you, and it would play it back in Morse code. But the great thing about this 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 burst encoder is that instead of sending it at 12 words per minute, it'll send it at 38, 42, 50 uh, words per minute. 
So when it's played over the radio, it sounds like a, like a blip. It might sound like a bit of a, a bit of atmospheric interference or something like that. Or to the untrained ear, it'll be nothing. But to me, back at my HQ, it's your message coming in. And that's pretty much how a number station will work. This to and throwing of messages would, would continue using you know decryption codes, uh, using encryption bursting coders, drop boxes. It would carry on, and it's carrying on until this day. But right up to the, to the fall of the Berlin War, it was going on for oh, 30 minutes a time. Every 30 minutes throughout 24 hours, you'd have a number station and messages going back and forth. That's a really good explanation there. So the number the number stations were a way of communicating with an agent in enemy territory in, in a way that the enemy couldn't identify who that agent was because it was just being broadcast over the normal airwaves. Using a regular radio, somebody could tune into that and hear those messages and identify that they were for them by their identification number. And then using the one time pad, they'd then be able to decrypt them so that they would then know what their instructions were. And I remember stumbling across one or two of these stations on shortwave during the Cold War when I used to, you know, listen to or be intrigued by stations like Radio Moscow and the other Warsaw Pact English language stations. And you just stumble across these weird metallic sounding voices rattling off a load of numbers really quickly, normally in German. I I appear to be picking up either the West German or East (laughs) German number stations. But I I think the the other side of it that's that's also interesting is you mentioning about the, the, the burst transmission there, because that technology was developed quite early in the Cold War. I think the Krogers, who were uh, some Soviet spies who were captured in a bungalow in, in Ryslip as part of the uh, the Portland spy ring, they had a burst transmitter, and that was even in the 1950s. Yeah, so, uh, you know, look, I live quite close to Bletchley Park, which is, as many people know, is, is the home of the Enigma machine and, and the bomb from World War II. And I was speaking to a couple of people there, and, and they seem to believe that burst encoders go, go way back further as far back as, as as World War II, at least. Um, but we know that there's evidence of number stations going back, perhaps even as far as World War One. But we have to remember that a lot of number stations have been one way, and it would only be the, the high critical situations where you would have a two-way communication. Yeah, where it's an urgent need to communicate back to the centre or Norman and Strasse, for example. Yeah, and, and, and even then, across... Across the entirety of the Warsaw Pact, there was, I believe it was in, in Romania alone, there was about 200,000 agents. So if you have that number multiplied across how many countries there is, that's a lot of burst encoders that have to be created for that for that particular mission or, or for their individual missions. Um, so you start to, you can start to build a profile where you go, oh, actually, so the burst encoders would only be given to the to the highest trusted people out there. You gave the example of something like 9.30 on a Wednesday evening. I mean, how long were these number station transmissions? Because, I mean, if they had a lot of agents, you might be sitting there waiting for your 425 or whatever number. You see, I'm a useless agent. I've forgotten the number you gave me already. But, you know, you could be sitting there for quite some time waiting for your number to be called. Obviously, other agents would be transmitted to on different nights, but 
could you be waiting for an hour or an hour or so before your number came up? As as far as I'm aware, yes. You're working <laughs> for your country, Ian. We need all that information we can get. We've got an ideological war to win here. Yeah, but the pubs are open, comrade commander. I mean, you know, I, sounds like I wouldn't be lasting very long, eh? Uh, you better bring those Marlboro cigarettes back, I'll tell you now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. So uh, were there any attempts to jam these stations by the opposing sides? Oh, absolutely. Um, we know that the, the, the Soviets had a, had a great time trying to jam anything and everything they could get their hands on. I've seen pictures of, of equipment that looks like steel lockers, probably the width of a, of a pool table, all covered in flashing lights. And apparently these are set, these like oscillation generators and they're sending out as many kilowatts of power trying to overpower the CIA, the BND, uh, MI6 as well. They're trying so hard to do this. And it's, it's, it's sort of replicated across most of the Warsaw Pact. It's not necessarily seen as a practice from... Uh, from the NATO organizations, it seems to be a very, you know, not only can we send a message, uh, but we can also block your messages coming in. That's how big and that's how strong and that's how effective we can be in this game if we want to play that sort of stuff. Well, let's go and, and look at some of the the individual stations. I mean, if we start off with the with the Warsaw Pact, as I'm a deep cover Stasi agent. You know what? What are the the notable or, or memorable stations that were were out there for for the Warsaw Pact countries? Absolutely. So you know, Berlin has always been the capital of the Cold War. So I think the only thing we have to start off with the gongs. Uh, now the the gongs are the the haunting station of the, of the Stasi. Uh, it it was the most regularly played station. Um, it would you could hear it every night. It didn't matter where you were. You didn't have to be in Germany. Uh, you didn't have to be in France. You could hear it here in the United Kingdom. And it, it would play every night. Every 30 minutes would be a brand new message. Um, and the station went back as far. We know it started operating in the 1970s. Um, but what it would sound like is it would be a grandfather clock. So when we say gongs, that's where these chimes come from. You know, these big, deep notes being blasted out of out of your radio. And there would be this very metallic voice coming out of it. Some people call her the Fraulein. I've heard people call her the Friday night Fraulein. Yeah, your fun, your weekend doesn't start until you've heard the Friday night Fraulein. Um, but essentially, it would be a, a mechanical voice being produced from, from a from a Sprach Morse generator. Uh, and it, it would, every half hour, you'd hear speaking groups of messages. And then th- the half hour would come and the gongs would play again. And away she goes again, 45, your number's coming up. Right, half an hour then passes, and another agent's number's being called up. Sieben, 
Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. What we can see is there wasn't much care or attention in their practice um, so back in the back in the 1970s. They must have been using reel-to-reel recorders um, because these, these gongs. When, when we hear, listen to the earlier recordings, the, the gongs sound lovely and clear. They're quite crystal. But when you start to listen to the st- <laughs> you start listening to the recordings from the 19, you know, the late 1980s, it's almost as if this one particular tape has been chewed up, it's been stretched, it's been seen by the sun. So the gongs don't necessarily sound crystal clear. They sound like something from way old. It's almost as if they tried to record something in stone. It was that bad. But yeah, that's Geo Geo Three. That's the gongs. Um, also, as well, over in over in Russia, uh, the USSR, you'd have your Russian man. Now, this this was a, a a chap who would creep out of the radio with a really really deep Russian voice, and he would zero zero zero, and it'd be really really deep, really really unsettling. So that you could hear that one again constantly uh, all the way throughout the Cold War. The interesting thing about that is they believe it was broadcast from the same transmitters as Radio Moscow. Um, so if you're a shortwave listener at night and then you just hear this this Russian man, uh, later he was replaced by a Russian lady and then it went back to a man again. And were, they using, were the Russians using automation as well to um, put these messages together or was it just the East Germans? Uh, we, we see a lot more automation coming from the East Germans uh, and a lot more automation coming from the Warsaw Pact compared to uh, the USSR. Um, it was almost as if they started sharing equipment. Um, a lot of it was made in, you know, in the GDR. And uh, we've later seen these these uh, machines come out with it, you know, the traditional 1980s computers, big boxy things. But the, the cards that would go in them weren't like a they weren't like a credit card it was literally a physical unit about the size of a hard drive with the, the voice generator on it mm. um, we know those went to hungary we know those went to poland and we think some of them had also gone across to romania too let's talk about those other warsaw pact countries um just so i can hear how my fellow comrade agents in the other fraternal countries um were operating what what notable stations are there in in those other countries, yeah. So this, this, there's a there's a Hungarian station. I mentioned it brief, brief, briefly before G zero four, which is called the Three Note Oddity. Back in the day, you, you might hang up. Somebody might hang up the phone, and then eventually you hear a boom, boom, boom. 
boom, 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 as if someone's hung up a phone. The Hungarians managed to somehow utilize that noise and broadcast it across the radio, and then their message would follow. Hungary is something. Hungary is a country that we don't necessarily hear much of in in you know post nineteen fifty six with their goulash communism, but we know they're still alive and they still have a, a foreign intelligence mission going on. We don't know where it was going to. Maybe maybe it's going to Romania. Maybe it was going to bordering Yugoslavia. But we know that they're certainly on on the the side as well. Uh, Romania as well. Uh, I don't quite know what to say about the Romanian station. It's I don't want to come across as offensive, but the piece of music they've chosen there is called The Skylark, and it is headache-inducing. If you have a hangover, you certainly don't want to listen to that. Um, for for, for Ceausescu's Republic, they were knocking messages out constantly. And you could, again, you could hear that station here in the United Kingdom. Um, but probably one thing just to remember about Ceausescu's Romania was Ceausescu actually gave the order to, to bomb Radio Free Europe once upon a time. And we don't know if that message might have come from uh, Ceausescu's uh, Skylark station. Uh, I believe it's V01, that one. Is there any evidence of countries setting up number stations but not putting any agents in the field, almost as a psychological ploy? There's evidence of it. I can't necessarily say it for true. Um, I'm still doing some research on it, but one of the stations out there is, is G, G21. Um, it's called Music and Morse. Now, that's a Stasi station. And um, we, we notice it, it begins with a song. So it doesn't necessarily begin with those gongs. It begins with a song. It's called Schlaf Schön Rosemary by a band called Express. The lyrics at the start of the song, they're, they're German. The words actually translate to, I know exactly what he wants. He wants more and more till he's got everything he wants. Then don't say you didn't want it. Now that's that almost sounds like a threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. We, we don't know if if there was an actual message going to it. It could just be someone's having someone's got someone's got a right old grudge against the West, and they just really want to taunt them with it. You know, you mentioned with these stations G seven G whatever. How are the what what do those letters mean? in terms of identifying each station? Back in the early 1980s, there was a, a group of amateur radio operators, so ham radio users here in the UK, and they noticed a lot of these stations. Um, and eventually they started grouping together and they gave themselves the name Enigma, uh, and that's an acronym for European Numbers Information Gathering and Monitoring Association. Um, and they started noting these transmissions down, giving them names, uh, working out what language they were on, and and how often they were heard. Um, so when I when I talk about Bulgarian Betty or Three Note Oddity or or saxophone, it comes from Enigma. Uh, and anyway, they they eventually they gathered loads of information. Uh, so they created a filing system for them all, and then broken down into their respective language groups. There's about 110 noted stations in all, all with an Enigma designation. Uh, they split into language groups. Uh, so English, German. Slavic and various. So E, English, G, German, S for Slavic, and then various. By, by no offense do we mean uh, various, just get in, the, get in the back. It means stuff like French, Romanian, Spanish, Hungarian, languages of, of the Far East. Um, and we've also got Morse and digital modes too. 
um, but purely for the podcast. We'll we'll focus on the first first four of those. So yeah, so your English language stations, your German stations, all that. But there was also a split for different families as well. Um, Enigma managed to identify the patterns between each station, so you could work out if it was CIA, MI5, MI6, BND, uh, KGB, all that sort. But there were still a few loose ends because uh, there wasn't enough evidence collected before the Cold War ended. Uh, for instance, there was a number station given G23 designation, so it was the 23rd German station they've noticed. Uh, for instance, it was broadcast on April the 20th, uh, which happened to be Adolf Hitler's birthday. So they managed to give the name Adolf Hitler's birthday. But we know it was broadcast once, and that's about it. So that's that's all the information we ever have about it. But there's information that shows another picture of the Cold War as well. Um, so, for instance, E10, which is NATO alphabet, um, it was believed to have been an Israeli station, which could be here fantastically in South Africa. Um, so does it tie in with the Vila incident, uh, where there was that supposed nuclear weapons test in, in is it the, the Indian Ocean? And then there was evidence collected that shows the size of the sum operations. So, for instance, G16, uh, which is the two-letter broadcast. Again, that was another 30-minute uh, interval station across Europe. You can see a ton of agents throughout that. And there's also a way you could identify how big an area they could uncover. Um, so again, this this all goes down to Enigma again. As a rule of thumb, the lower the frequency of a radio station, the further your transmission will reach. Um, so for instance, if you're in Europe, you wouldn't really use a frequency lower than 7 megahertz. Um, 7 megahertz, for those of you who use old money, that's the 40-meter band. Um, and a lot of stations in Europe were kept between 7 and 14 megahertz. Uh, but uh, certain stations went beyond. We've got records of stations in the 2 megahertz area. Again, this is Enigma doing all this this notation down. Oh, hang on, we've got a station here which is on the 160-meter band. Uh, but for that, you need a very large antenna. And again, you need a lot of power to make a reliable transmission. And 2 megahertz is going to bounce across oceans. So they might pick up the phone to their friend in America and go, Hey, we've we've got this radio station that we can hear here. Can you hear it in America? What's going on? So yeah, that you can sort of see Enigma are working together. They're just a group of amateur radio operators who just want to have a bit of fun, you know, solving this this Cold War mystery. Incredible, incredible. Um, because I interviewed a uh, KGB agent who was uh, deep covering the US for ten years, and he was receiving his instructions via a number station broadcasting from Cuba. HM01, um, that is the, the hybrid mode station. It's, it's, it's quite an interesting one because it, it survived beyond the Cold War and you can still hear Windows XP playing in the background sometimes. Uh, but wow. it, but, but it, it still remains a mystery to many Americans who can somehow hear it on their radio stations out there. Yeah, because uh, the US did round up a load of Cuban agents, I think, in the 2000s, was it? I was about then, yeah. My, my memory's yeah. a bit sketchy on that. I, I think who were being communicated, obviously via this um, via this same uh, same station. But um, oh, fascinating! Oh, love this sort of stuff. Love this sort of stuff. Um, so we've we've had a look at the um, the Warsaw Pact. Quick mention oh. of Cuba there as well. But what about NATO? I mean, the one number station that I'm familiar with mainly because of its name and its um sort of uh, intro tune for lack of a better term is the lincolnshire poacher 
Yes, the, the the lady lady of Blighty. Um, again, I mentioned um, I, I live just within walking distance of Bletchley Park, and that's pretty much the spiritual home of the Lincolnshire poacher. How would we describe it? At the end of the of World War Two, Bletchley Park carried on decoding messages until about 1946, and that's when the the predecessor to GCHQ launched. Uh, Bletchley Park was then given across to British Telecom. Um, and GCHQ and its again its its inter- interim predecessor moved off to Gaydon and, and then eventually to Cheltenham. But again, just at the road, you've also got Hanslow Park, which is the government's central communications headquarters as well. And what we believe is that the Lincolnshire poacher first began her life in Buckinghamshire. There's lots of places here they can broadcast from. Uh, Gaydon is one is one of the recognised places where they think uh, she was broadcast. And what is there really to say about her? We know that she was broadcast from Akrotiri in Cyprus. And her dial-up tune, uh, they, they call it a calliope. It's sort of a cross between an ice cream van and an old school carousel. And it's playing this tune called the Lincolnshire Poacher. She was undeniably British. There's no way you could get around her, her origin. Mostly beamed across into the Middle East. But you can still hear her across here in in the United Kingdom. And um, that's also to say that, well, we know we actually had to transmit this in the Middle East. So she was covering a massive area when you think about it. It was certainly covering most of Germany. <laughs> yeah, and she also had a sister station as well. Uh, she was beamed um, from Australia across to Hong Kong. But again, I don't know. We don't necessarily know too much about the sister station, Cherry Ripe. <laughs> again, Britain was very, very quiet about about its number station game. We don't know enough about it. It didn't go off the air until 2000 and it's about 2010 it went off the air. So is there is there still nothing in the national archives about number stations? If there is, it's it's censored. There is very likely to be nothing about British number stations. Um there may be some stuff about former countries. There might be something about Czechoslovakian stations. Uh certainly at Q it's a story I'll go into later on, but yeah, again, this is all very hush hush. We still don't remember. We still don't know enough that came out of Bletchley Park. A lot of the stuff from World War Two is kept quiet. Um, I guess we've got to remember the Cold War is quite modern history, so some of the people who might be implicated in those files might still be alive. Uh, and again, it could bring them into disrepute. Yeah, I mean, what I generally find when I speak to intelligence people who served in the Cold War is. They'll answer questions up to a point, but when I want to know, well, who were you listening to and how were you listening to them? They're not so keen on uh, on sharing that information. And I think it's because the technology and the tricks and methods are still being used today in some shape or form. Yeah, so radio equipment has, hasn't really evolved. DAB is, you know, digital audio broadcasting is is kind of the new thing, but we've had that since the early two thousands. But back in back in the old days, we were using crystal radios. We've mastered radio technology, so it, in in the most Spartan fashion, you could string up a radio from nothing. But also, as well, your your intelligence agency might have provided you something with with equipment that the UK or or the US or or, or Russia still hasn't comprehended. Um, that that. The Dutch certainly had a fantastic setup, and it was in use all the way from the 1960s until at least the 1990s. That's how modern some of this technology was. And again, it's still 
it's still under wraps for a lot of people. What about other NATO stations? What were the uh, our uh, cousins across the pond up to? Oh, the CIA. Uh, when I mentioned that Enigma would like to give names to these stations, uh, we talked about Bulgarian Betty. We've talked about... Um, I'm loving Bulgarian Betty. She's... That's a great name for a station. <laughs> absolutely fantastic name. The Americans certainly had a had their own station, um, but we called her Cynthia. Uh, synthetic voice operated by the CIA. So synth, IA, <laughs> Cynthia. And Brilliant. She was that was that sounded like top notch technology. Uh, again, you could hear her all across Europe, but she seemed to be booming a hell of a lot out of uh, Frankfurt and Munich. There's been stories of uh, transmitters being tracked down, radio finding, um, managed to managed to track the, the transmitters down to to those two cities. Um, but again, that set of stations was massive, and the CIA did a lot of work with the with the German BND. Um, so it's quite hard to work out: is it a BND station or is it a CIA station? I was going to ask about the BND, the uh, the West German secret service. Were they? A big player in the number stations uh, set up? Absolutely. One of their stations, we call it one of their stations. This is it's, it's quite one of the, the most, um, how should I put it, the biggest section I can talk about really is, is the two letter stations. Um, one of them is, is known as Papa November. And it's, we know that there was, for every two letters, there was a series of agents along with this. And I think we've worked it out to be about 223 agents at least just using this one station. And there's probably thousands more coming out of the BND transmitters. We don't have enough information about that. Everyone I've spoken to at this moment seems to have different agents they've all written down. Um, They've all got different agent identifiers. They've all got different these two letters. That basically, I think the sky's the limit with, with the number of combinations you can make. Um, but there was this. There's no way of identifying which one is a psyops and which one is a real agent. And I, and I guess they could have tried to make it sound like they got more agents than they did have by, as we discussed earlier, either using dummy numbers or some agents having multiple numbers. So if it's Thursday, your number's this one, and if it's Wednesday, it's. It's this number, although it's complicated enough by the sound of it without giving agents multiple numbers. Absolutely, but but I have to consider as well that those different different numbers might also mean a completely different set of instructions. Um, it could be okay. You need to go to your Dropbox, or right, okay, we're sending you some extra cash, or you might only have a message come through on. Or we gave you number four two five, but four two six might be. Oh, this is a message from your mum. She misses you. Uh, you're going to church it might be something as simple as that and what evidence has come up in the former warsaw pact countries where the intelligence files have been opened up like poland and and east germany about their penetration or knowledge of nato number stations oh so i could probably tell you a bit about uh czechoslovakia if that would tickle your pickle Always, yeah. always. I love, always love a Czechoslovakian story. Oh, great. So it's quite pertinent to us because, you know, we're, we're both here in the United Kingdom. Um, so there's a, there's a Czech agent, and he's known as Erwin van Harlem. But for you observant listeners straight away, you, you recognize that's probably a Dutch name. Um, anyway, in 1975, 
Van Harlem arrives in London and he's working at the Hilton Hotel in Mayfair. Uh, that's, that's a hotel in fine view of Buckingham Palace. And his aim is there to, to spy on the royal family. Uh, he had, apparently he wanted the, the idea of hiding devices in the furniture of Buckingham Palace, which, hoping to get a good scoop. It seems like a ridiculous idea at the start, but when we look at what the Soviets did with the bug hidden in that wooden seal of arms, it's not actually that mad. Anyway, he'd return uh, his observations uh, via radio in the form of coded messages through his burst encoder. But as the years moved on, his, his mission changed. We knew at some point his mission was to gain intelligence about refuseniks. The, the, the refuseniks were a group of Jews held in the USSR who wanted to emigrate, but they were pretty much being used as uh, political pawns. So in 1977, he's doing his observations and then he gets a message from the STB, which stated, your mother's trying to find you in Czechoslovakia with the help of the Red Cross. Should the Red Cross find you, a meeting is to be agreed with. Now on the face of it, that's a very odd thing for the STB to do. But anyway, for some reason, he goes along with it. And the STB tell him, go along with it. So on New Year's Eve 1978, he meets his mother who was called Johanna. Uh, so here's how we have a Czech spy with a Dutch name. Johanna told Erwin that his father was a Polish Nazi. Uh, and he was a Polish Nazi who raped her, and he joined the National Socialist Movement to protect his family. But you see, Johanna's father was Jewish, and after all the trauma that the Jewish community had gone through in the 1930s and 40s, for his daughter to come home bearing the child of a Nazi conceived by rape... It's, it's impossible to comprehend that level of emotion and thoughts going through a father's mind. Um, so he ordered Johanna to take baby Irwin as far away as possible and abandon him. Uh, she took him to Prague and left him at an orphanage in Holoceviche. Irwin was convinced by this story. Um, and as they built a, a strong re- relationship, Johanna started saying, look, come on, get to know me a bit more. So she, she asked him to come out to Holland get to know his wider family. So we know his grandfather's Jewish, uh, his mother Johanna is Jewish, and her family is likely Jewish. Um, and his mission is to gather intelligence about the refuseniks. It's looking great for him. So It's looking great for him, it's looking great for the STB, and it's looking great for the USSR, who they report to. You've got to remember that in, in the Cold War, it was really, really hard for the USSR to get a spy into London. So they leased this. They leased the opportunity out to the Czechs. It was easier to get a Czech passport into the UK than it was to get a Russian passport in. Um, but he's doing really, really good. Um, by the 1980s, he'd visited a Polaris submarine base, and he'd managed to get information about underwater sonar systems. Um, and those pretty much trigger an alert when a submarine is near. Now, when you think about it, that's really, really significant intelligence. Um, and because of this, he was doing so well. He was awarded a medal from the Soviets at a party dedicated to his own work. So he's got this amazing success as an agent, but this relationship with his long-lost mother begins to take its toll. In an interview that the writer Jeff Mache did with him, Irwin felt that Johanna was a bit of a fascist. Remember, he's a patriotic, patriotic agent of the STB, who are controlled by the USSR, and his mother's from the Netherlands, who is a member of NATO. But for some reason, he keeps this relationship going. Now, I, I imagine a lot of your listeners are like Irwin and myself, I love my mother, but as all mothers can be, they can be a liability. Um, I remember moving back to my mother's house for a few weeks between jobs, and it's as hard as ever to have your privacy from your parents when you, they want to know everything. 
Um, and that's one of the great things about this story is that it becomes relatable. He's got to hide his role as an STP agent from his mother, and she wants to be around him all the time. Um, so he, he does the best to keep his head down, uh, living, life as a, living life as an agent in London. Um, by 1986, he's left the Hilton. He's become an art dealer. Uh, the STB have bought him a flat uh, in, in North London in a place called Finchley. But what seems like a nice life for some is becoming very bizarre for Erwin van Harlem. So he notices there's a change of postman at his flat, his apartment, his windows are getting cleaned daily. And there's a British telecom technician who had to come and change his phone, or at least fix his phone line, which is broken for some reason. And it's mentioned that he goes out for a drive and he recognises something. Uh, there's two cars behind him. Um, they're doing manoeuvres that, that, that are pretty much taught in the STB. Um, and again, just to go jump back to the interview with Jeff Mache, he said that they must be tailing somebody. <laughs> and it, it took him a while to suddenly realise oh, they're actually trailing me. I'm an agent in the UK. They're after me. He knows that, that MI5 and MI6 are after him now. So he keeps his head down low throughout the rest of 1986 and 87, and he tries not to draw attention to himself. So we've got to remember Irwin is, is living in Finchley. It's a real nice bit of suburbia. Um, there's a bit of money around, um, but where there's money, there's strong attitudes. He's living in a very conservative area. There's a lot of conservative voters. And probably just to demonstrate how conservative the area is, the MP is no other than Margaret Thatcher. But in 1987, November 1987, something major happens. Um, at 20 past nine every night, his neighbour, Mrs. Saint, has her television interrupted. Her, re- her television reception's getting interference. But Mrs. Saint isn't just any normal woman. She's the 61-year-old leader of the local neighbourhood watch. Ian, would you explain to your listeners what Neighbourhood Watch is here in the UK? Neighbourhood Watch in the UK is sort of like a community organisation who keep an eye on each other's property to protect them against burglary, but they know everything about everyone. My mother used to be a member of the um, Neighbourhood Watch, and I always used to say to her, it's like being in the Stasi. Oh yeah, we've got it. We've got it in my neighbourhood as well. I've pretty much said the same thing. So in, instead of getting help from British Telecom or Ofcom or the television licence people, Mrs. Saint dodges, uh, dons her neighbourhood watch hat, picks up the telephone, and calls nine nine nine. And we jump to six months later. It's the twenty second of April, nineteen eighty eight. It's a gloomy Saturday morning. It's nine fifteen, and a number station transmission commences. Erwin, he's in his PJs in the kitchen with a cup of coffee slumped over the radio, writing down the numbers. And about 9.16, the the door bursts open and the police arrest him immediately. And detectives on the scene find messages in invisible ink and ultimately they find his one-time pads. Some of them are concealed in bars of soap. And at his trial, Erwin van Harlem is sentenced to 10 years in prison for espionage and he sees the fall of communism from his prison cell and after a hunger strike he's deported back to his homeland of the Czech Republic not Czechoslovakia because he also saw his country get divorced too Um, but I like to think he had the last laugh uh, because the prison sentence was for a person named Erwin van Harlem his real name was Václav Jelinek 
And you see, in the 1960s, the SDB had found Wroclaw, who was a military guard studying German, when he should have been vigilant at a checkpoint. And instead of being disciplined, he was recruited by the STB. Uh, they looked at their observations and realized he was quite a patriotic risk taker, intelligent and all-round spy material. And Wroclaw chose the cover name Urban van Harlem. Erwin was actually a real person. He was an orphan who was abandoned at Prague. So that story we mentioned then. Um, so we know Erwin van Harlem exists. Uh, he was reported as a missing person in the Netherlands. And there's a story of him meeting Johanna, so we've got that evidence too. But what about Johanna? So she died in 1992, uh, but we don't know if she was foreign intelligence or not. You see, it's really, really intriguing that a message came, that a message came about his mother trying to reach out for him. Within months of him arriving in the UK, she's on the scene. She's a constant liability hit, and he can't shake her off. It's almost as if she's countering him. Uh, why did the STB order him to go along with it? Uh, somebody had told him to humour this woman who had appeared out of the blue. Why didn't they manage it more carefully? But ultimately, we're talking about number stations, and I'll, I'll wind this back up here. We're talking about number stations, and MI5 or GCHQ were clearly working with Special Branch here. The number station that Vostov Yelenek was listening to uh, operated on a very rigid schedule, forecasting every 30 minutes. Again, like I mentioned earlier, all they had to do was identify the pattern of broadcasts uh, that Vostov was listening to and strike in the middle of one when he was writing the numbers down, knowing that he'd be preoccupied. And then just one little bit is on the end. He was listening to S10, the one we know as Bulgarian Betty. She wasn't Bulgarian at all. She was Czech. Wow. Wow. That's a great, that's a great, great story. Um, I wonder whether he's still around. He is. Um, I believe he's 77 years old. Uh, he still lives in Prague. Um, but I, he does, he, apparently he doesn't speak that much. He won't, he won't talk about his uh, experiences as a, as a spy. Uh, I mentioned there he did an interview with Jeff Meish. Um, his book is available. It's a couple of pages long. You don't have to, it's, it's not a full month to read it. It's about an hour to read. But it's a great story. And I used to live probably about a mile from where he was he was caught as well. So that sort of makes it even even closer to me as a story. That's a that's a great story. Now we were gonna also talk about the, the non aligned nations or the neutral nations, because they were they were using number stations as well, weren't they? Yeah, so again we mentioned about Israel. Uh Israel's in there, uh, and also Yugoslavia. Um we often forget that Yugoslavia at the time of the Cold War was a socialist country, but we don't really have much to go off. Um, we know that they were pumping out a, a number of stations. One of them was called Ready Ready. Um, and you, you could hear the accent in there, but we don't have much going on. So I, I can only presume that for a, a non-aligned state, a non-aligned country I had to maintain their neutrality. And the only way you can maintain your neutrality is by having that intelligence that your neighbouring countries are going to invade you or not. Um, again, so this, this must have been an opportunity for them to identify, is there anybody playing tricks with us? 
And presumably the other NATO countries had their own, so like the Dutch or the Belgians. I think you mentioned the French, who were obviously outside NATO to some degree, but if the balloon had gone up, would have uh, swiftly been back in. Yeah, so we don't have anything for the Dutch as of yet. We don't have anything for the Belgians, but we, we think we've got one for France. And the question's out there. And I, it, it, it's called the Tyrolean Music Station, and we we think it might be French, but we cannot prove it yet. There's there's three leads on this, and I'll, I'll talk you through them all. For, for a long time, the, the Tyrolean music station uh, was believed to have been a North Sea operation. Um, it gets its name, uh, the Tyrolean music station, from from the German Umpa music it plays. Uh, it's it's a fantastic bit of music, uh, if you like a yodeling. Um, so we think it was a French station, but we can't be sure. We think there's a couple of leads that sort of stray away from this. Uh, some people believe it's a French operation run by the SD. ECE. Um, some people think it's uh, operated mostly by the DDR, but let's let's talk about that DDR link first. For those of you who were around in the 1970s, you might have listened to a pirate radio station called Radio Norsey International, and that was broadcast from a ship called the Mebo 2. Mebo was a company, Mebo Telecommunications. It was run by two Swiss guys, uh, Erwin Meister and Edwin Bollier. And not all is well with Meister and Bollier. Their name is still quite controversial to this day, as they were accused of supplying the timing device for the bomb on Pan Am Flight 103, which detonated over Lockerbie. But it was in this trial, in the Lockerbie, in the Lockerbie bombing trial, that Meister and Bollier were revealed to be Stasi agents. A, f- a former Stasi employee named Joachim Wenzel testified at the trial that he was Bollier's handler in the 1980s. And then the link to the Tyrolean music station became stronger. Um, just as Radio North Sea International would close down at night, you might hear a little bit of a ditty. And occasionally, it would be some yodeling music. Uh, a great person called Franz Lang. Uh, but you, you'd still hear this, and we don't know if it was the cleaner. We don't know if they just popped a record on. Um, almost think of it as an accidental call from your pocket. You can hear this music, oh, but for some reason, it, 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 it aligned with the Tyrolean music station that broadcasted in the, in the early 1970s. So that, there was that. But furthermore, there was a time when the ship hosted Radio Norsi International broke its, broke its anchor chain. And that same night, the Tyrolean music station broadcast was missing. Um, in 1970, uh, in August, the ship was, was attacked as part of a failed hijacking. And then in 1971, it was bombed with the ship catching fire. Five men were arrested and sentenced to a year, just a year in prison. Uh, they stated that their motivation was money and adventure, um, but they'd also been aware that the Mebo 2 may have been tied up with the GDR. And at the end of 1974, North Sea International, the, the music station, had ceased broadcasting. The ship was hauled off to the Netherlands, and in 1977, it was carted off to Libya. So there's a couple of links there, though. So we know it was operated by two Stasi agents, and you know, it 
that some of the some of the key dates sort of line up with it. Uh, but let's come back to France. Um, the alternate view is that the Turin Music Station was a French operation, and it ceased operation when it was discovered. One of our sister websites, Prion, managed to do an investigation which covered a number of leads. Um, some of the evidence supporting this is that the voice of the station is Alsatian. Um, so it comes from the Alsace, Alsace area. Uh, it was reported in a magazine called Interferences that it was operated by SDECE and named at French agents behind the Iron Curtain. The same people who did the investigation also suggest that it was aimed at the NTS, who were the National Alliance of Russian Solidarists. They were the anti-communist group descended from white Russians. Um, the NTS had their own counterintelligence operation within the USSR, and it operated Radio Free Russia. Um, but Radio Free Russia was very slapdash in operation. Uh, supposedly, it was operated from antennas and equipment strapped to the back of trucks, and it, oper- oper- it would have been operated from the forests of Bavaria, so it would have been hidden by trees, uh, and the trucks meant it could have been quite agile. The investigation outlined that the NTS had a habit of broadcasting messages in the form of sentences, and that's one of the key things about this station. Not all of it would come in numbers. It would come in sentences as well, such as, the trousers you sent fit really well. <laughs> Our chicken has laid an egg. That's a station I'd listen to, that one. That sounds that sounds brilliant. It, it's perhaps my favourite. Um, <laughs> but when we talk about, oh, the trousers you sent me fit me really well, our chicken has laid an egg. The Tyrolean music station, and, and you, you know, you think about this, the French resistance were also in World War II were quite, um, they were known for sending their messages in uh, in sentences. If you think back to a low, a low, the BBC comedy series, you know, listen carefully, I should say this only yeah. once. Yeah, that's, I know it's a bit of a, a joke on it, but it's- I think you're right because I remember that the message to the French Resistance for D-Day w- was something like the long sobs of the violin, something, something, something. I just remember the start, the start of the phrase, but yeah, they were using those sentences for the different um, units to uh, to pick up that deduction, maybe in the right direction. So, so, so there's that, and then. Th- the, the Tyrolean Music Station also communicated its messages with a snippet of the communist anthem, the International. But it's often overlooked in the Cold War that, that socialism is in within France's DNA, um, so much so that the Chant de Partisans is often sung during Veterans Day and, and Bastille Day. And you think about you know, all the revolutions we've had. France is very socialist when we think about it, but we don't often think about it in the sense of East versus West. So... Priam said that their source is solid, um, but in all of our investigations, nothing can be 100% conclusive. But I did mention one final lead. Um, This is probably one of the most interesting leads there is. For those who may not know, South Tyrol is an area in northern Italy, uh, which is formerly part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's focused around the city of Borzen, which we now know as um, Bolzano and and Murano. Um, immediately after World War One, it's annexed by the Italians. Um, from history that we know, Italian fascism was a big thing, and it meant that the German language was banished, German teaching was forbidden, German newspaper was censored. Um, if you've ever been, it's a beautiful place. And that sort of means that the fascist regime started sending people from other parts of Italy to South Tyrol to, to make it a future Italian place. So you've got this, this location in Italy identifies itself as Austrian. Its identity has pretty much been outlawed, and Italy's forcing its own image on on the South Tyrol. And this causes a lot of unrest amongst people. 
1930s arrives and Austria is annexed as part of the Anschluss. But because there's an alliance between Hitler and Mussolini, the same doesn't happen. So the, the Italians continue as going. Hitler and Mussolini agreed that every citizen of the South Tyrol should have an option given to them. Uh, stay in South Tyrol and give up your cultural German identity or leave your homeland of South Tyrol. Move to Nazi Germany and maintain your cultural identity. Now, from this decision, a lot of family members were split. Italy became part of the Allies in 1943. And from the ouster of Mussolini, it meant that the South Tyrol defaulted across to Nazi Germany rule. Uh, they jumped in at the chance and then annexed it. Now, the Germans and Austrians are back on scene and they push their culture back on. Uh, the end of the war comes and the Allies sit on the fence for a bit. Uh, eventually, it goes across to Italy again. So, once again, it's culturally ethnic German. The majority of people are Italian. And it becomes a big issue for the United Nations in the 1960s. Uh, but what brought it further to the attention of everyone was a campaign of terrorism by the BAS. And that's the Committee for the Liberation of South Tyrol. Now, they managed to kill about 21 people. Um, Ten years had passed uh, until the treaty between Austria and Italy had been signed. But So 1971, that's when that treaty had been finished. But then in 1971, you've got Radio Free Tyrol popping up. Uh, and this is backed up with documented evidence from a chap named Larry Magner. Um, he mentioned that, oh, I can hear something called Radio Free Tyrol um, operate on the weekend between 11 and 11.40 and 7 and 8 at night. Um, and I'll quote from the published article. Uh, the, the transmission is described as German yodel music with no announcement being from Austria to Tyrolians in Italy's German-speaking province of Sud Tyrol. And then also in 1973, the the Guide to Broadcasting Stations book, which is a book acknowledging all the shortwave stations you can see in the UK. It's a list prepared by the BBC receiver station, and the book often includes a list of clandestine stations operated for the public. And when I say clandestine stations operated for the public, we mean propaganda. Um, and under 6425 kHz, there's a station named Radio Free Tyrol. So it's mentioned in 1971, and it's mentioned in the Guide to Broadcasting Stations in 1973. Larry Magnus book was seemingly based on the BBC data, and what just happens to be listed in Larry Magnus book back in 1971 as well is Radio Free Tyrol. So what we're seeing is someone in the BBC monitoring service has made a connection between the Tyrolean music station, so that's our number station that we're mm. discussing, and Radio Free Tyrol. But what we don't have is how that connection was made. Um... Evidence from the BBC's monitoring service is available, and it is at the National Archives in Kew in London. We don't know if those detailed notes are going to be in those papers, but we have a chance to find out if Radio Free Tyrol and the number station was one of the same. Um, what makes it even more juicy? One more thing. I will just say that. One more thing. In 2018, there was an exhibition in Bolzano about the history of conflict, and amongst this exhibition was reference to BAS activists who had fled Austria in exile, but at some point the BAS had been infiltrated by the Stasi. Um, and again, there's a tape recorder in that exhibition, and it's the same used by the by the Czechoslovakians for their number station as well. So this this evidence has come forward where we've got three leads, and nobody knows what what the right answer is. But we now know that there's two opportunities where the Stasi is, and there's one where the French might be leading it. Uh, it wow! It it's a great bit of I'm quite enthusiastic about it because it's one of those hidden mysteries that were never solved. These 
stories that are coming out of uh, you know these number stations are, are are fascinating sort of hidden stories of the of the Cold War, which is um, what I'm always intrigued by. So as the the Cold War draws to an end, what what do we see with these number stations? Do we see any evidence of what's going on in in those countries, or do they just fade away? Yeah, so the, the fall of communism is documented through number stations. Um, I mentioned the station, the, the Romanian station Skylark V zero one. It's 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 that that station with with a headache inducing song played on violin and panpipes. Usually, the format is that the, the tune is played twice, and at six minutes past the hour, a male in, in Roma, a voice in Romanian will will creep out and say "terminat." Again, the recording made on the night that we've got, uh, the recording that was made on the night of the Romanian Revolution, 21st of December 1989, shortly before Nicolae Ceausescu and his wife Elena are executed, it's unsure whether the, whether the narrator reading the numbers was drunk or on edge. The, the, the staccato of the delivery was very, very, oh, <laughs> they might come after me next. They might, mm. They've got Ceausescu. It might be me. It might be my, it might be my family. Or it could, he could be on the other side. Right, guys, here's your message. Go get him, go get him, go get everybody else as well. G03, which is the gong station we also spoke about, that went quiet on November the 9th, 1990. Basically, Gunter Schabowski says to the press conference that, you know, the wall's open, off you go. Uh, then we have the gongs carry on ringing, and then at 11 o'clock, when the 11 o'clock transmission goes out, Instead of that cold-hearted speech machine, it's the it's a group of drunken Stasi officers singing "Alan Mein Enchen," which means "All of My Ducklings." Um, so y- you can sort of see this change happening where they're going. Oh, actually, wow. were, were we quite patriotic? Because a lot of the transmissions don't seem to say that. Is there a recording of that of the uh, Stasi officers singing drunkenly? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I've, I've got the re- recording. It's uh, it's on the website. With the fall of the wall, do you is there monitoring showing the Stasi transmitting to their agents just saying fend for yourself or you know, is is there a big flurry of messages going out as the um the state sort of disintegrates? We don't have the evidence of what was in those transmissions. If if there's anybody who was in the Stasi and or who has access to those files in, inside of Germany, we'd welcome to know what, what's in them. But what what we can probably say is we can see the evolution of the stations after the fall of the war. A lot of the stations that are used East German equipment suddenly uh, goes across to using CIA equipment. And you can see the Americans swooping in and sort of converting um, the the former East German stations, the the Polish station certainly, into a CIA operation. Um, Again, then the... 
on the other side of the wall, if you look at Soviet Russia, um, their stations continue, however. It's almost as if the Russians don't even recognize the wall coming down. And, and the same announcers there, the same messages, they never stopped. Uh, even for the Moscow coup, coup attempt, we've got a recording from that night as well. Um, they just continued as normal. It was almost as if, right, doesn't matter if the wall's come down, you're part of your Russian, you're going to carry on like us. So even past 25th of December 1991, they're still going as as usual, business as usual. Ian, they're going today. Still now, 2022. Wow. The only thing that's changed is that the KGB is mostly known now as the FSB. But obviously uh, one of their former KGB guys is still in charge overall. What what would you say is the legacy of the number stations today? The, the legacy of the number stations. So that's that's an interesting one. There's it, it's come around a lot in pop culture. Um, there's a, a film a film director called Cameron Crowe who he's put um, recordings of number stations in his film, uh, the film Vanilla Sky, for instance, with Tom Cruise. You can hear that in the background of it. Um, there's also a, a couple of bands who use them. So I mentioned Moby. He'd use them as well. Number stations, it's almost as if they become this mythical sort of throwback. We, we, know, we often talk about number stations in terms of the Cold War, and that's the only thing that's, that's really, really spoken about them. Uh, yeah, again, people use them as, as a horror trope or, or, or as a nightmare-inducing, uh, nightmare-inducing trope in a, in a film, but that, that's about it, really. Well, they are, I mean, they are quite haunting. I mean, the, the, the eeriness of the intro i was going to say intro music for that's me talking podcast talk but you know what i mean you know that they're, they're eerie in the the sound quality as well and then these sort of disembodied voices calling out groups of numbers they are the the source of nightmares yeah yes yeah, uh, swedish rhapsody that's the one but it sounds like a little girl is singing it and what makes it even more creepy is that like they've got like this little music box which is playing uh, Luxembourg. Oh Polka. my goodness! Um, I've, I've it, not heard that one. I'm not. I'm not listening to that one tonight. I think. Do you know what? I think that was one of the CIA's main targets because by 1998, the CIA had taken it over and thought, "No more of that, please. I want to sleep tonight." Wow, wow. So, wh- where can listeners listen to these recordings? I mean, Bulgarian Betty, I'm going to have to uh, have a listen into the Swedish Rhapsody. I'm, I'm getting quite a big playlist going here now. Absolutely. So, you can come and visit my website, shortwavenumbers.com. Um, there's also uh, loads of stuff on YouTube. There's a great website out there called preom.org. Um, they've managed to build a, a, a calendar so you can hear some of the modern transmissions going out to this day. Um, but again, I, if, if you want the history and you want the background information, come to shortwavenumbers.com. Are there any books out there that you would recommend on the subject of number stations? Absolutely. So there's one uh, book that is really, really hard to get right now. It's called Intercepting Number Station. And that's by a, a chap named Langley Pierce. And there's also the, the chap who helped me with the website, Simon Mason. He wrote a book called The Guide to Secret Signals, I believe it was called. Um, if you can find any of them in your local library or you might even find them at a car boot sale or whatnot, you might even find it in your grandfather's attic, um, I just strongly recommend one of those books. There's further information such as photos and videos in our episode notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. 
Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information